The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Amen. Amen. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 12, verse 13. Mark 12, verse 13. That's where we'll pick up where we left off last week in our journey through Mark, and we'll take it through verse 27 today. And as you're turning there, let me ask this question. Who took a test this week? Anybody, any students in the house take any tests this week? I mean, man, it's so early in the semester, so if you had a test this week, uh, uh, bless you, and let me know who your teacher is, because come on, it's like the first few weeks of school, right? Now, anybody, anybody in work or any certifications, anybody take a test this week? No, nada? Every, some of you are like, praise the Lord, tests are way far back in the rearview mirror, right? We don't have any of those things. But what are tests for? Ever thought about that? Why do we take tests? Why are they even a thing? Well, on the positive side, they prove our comprehension or the skill that is being required, Right? kind of the negative side, they uh, prove where we have some deficiencies in our understanding or where we need to improve in our skill. They're a necessary thing in both school and in life, and what is happening in Jesus' life right now is just this. He is being tested, tested over and over, even though he has proven time and again that he possesses understanding and an ability unlike anybody else. His ministry over the last several years as he has interacted with countless people has proven that he is in fact the Messiah, that he lacks nothing, that he has no areas of improvement, that his teaching is superior, that his understanding is unparalleled, that his abilities really know no limits. But the religious authorities of his day just would not accept that. They would not accept that. And so to believe that he was the Messiah would have massive implications for their life. And they were just unwilling to acquiesce. And what do we do when there are implications that we don't want to follow? What do we do when there's a teaching or something that we just do not like? How do we get out of it? Well, when we can run away, or if we stand in a place of authority, we can try to discredit the person of authority or the authority which they think they possess, and which is exactly what the religious ones do in this passage. Where we've seen the last few weeks as we've been journeying through Mark, answering this question as we've uh, come now into Jesus' last week of life, is we've seen that the Sanhedrin has, uh, is really beginning now to send several groups to test Jesus. Now, the Sanhedrin is the, groups that we, the group of people that we saw uh, you know, several weeks ago here, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They were kind of the ruling, governing board of that day, if you will. And so now they are sending several other groups within this to bring those zingers to test Jesus, to try to undermine his authority. And so in our passage today, we get to two of those uh, groups and two, of, well, three groups rather, but two tests. And I just want to spoil it for you right up front. If you're taking notes here, I want to spoil it. Jesus passes every test ever thrown at him. You just need to know that. If you're trying to test him, if you're testing the scriptures, you just need to know Jesus passes every test that has ever been thrown at him. He has yet to fail in anything or on anyone. He knows not the sting of dropping the ball. And so consider with me the first test, the, what I call the submission test. 
test, the submission test here in verse 13. Let's read it together, will you? Look there in your Bible. I'll read starting in verse 13 this submission test. Here it goes. It says, And they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And when they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I might add, truer words have never been spoken of Jesus, right? And they ask this, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word for God's people. This is the first test here. Now, what's really interesting here is who it actually is that is testing Jesus. And so he's just come out, he taught this parable, you know, the, the context here, his authority's been challenged. And so now these two groups of people, it was the Pharisees and the, look at verse 13, and the Herodians, these two groups now, they're like tag teaming Jesus. We saw this way back in chapter three. If you can think back months and months ago when we were there, they first uh, started to form their alliance. And, and you might remember that these two groups of people were really polar opposites of one another. The fact that they are working together is, is about as likely as Republican and Democratic senators working together on anything. Okay? On the one hand, you have the Pharisees over here, which are the, the very conservative uh, religious folks. They're the ones, you know, where we talk about being pharisaical and all that, that added all things to the law, were very strict in their observance of the Old Testament. Okay, so you have them. They didn't like what Jesus was saying because he is, he is undermining all of the extra rules and things that, that they have put on the people of God. And so Jesus is coming and say, no, no, like peel away all the layers. He's going for the heart. And on the other side, you have the Herodians then, which were very liberal. They were Jewish people, but they were loyal to Herod. They were loyal to the Roman occupation over Israel. They, they, they were considered traitors by the Pharisees and by many Jewish people because of their allegiance. So the Jewish person of that day, they hated the Roman occupation. They wanted national independence. They didn't want this foreign country and this foreign Caesar who was claiming to be God to have any sort of authority or oversight over them as a people, as a nation. And yet you had this group called the Herodians that liked it, that were loyal to him, that were agents actually of them. And they didn't typically get along. But here with Jesus, what do we see? It's that principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. And so they come together and what are they seeking to do? They're seeking to trap him in his talk. This is very interesting language. It's like a hunter. It's, a, it's used of like a predator going after his prey. So they are coming and what are they using to lure Jesus into a trap like corn in a hog pen? What are they using? They're using flattery. You see this here in verse 14? You know, like I said, truer words have never been spoken. They, this was exactly true here. You have to love this. We know you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. Yep, that's, that's Jesus, right? You're not swayed by appearances. Correct, he's got them on that more than once. And you truly teach the way of God. But it was all baloney. It's flattery. 
They didn't believe a word of it. It was oozing out of their lips, and yet it was so disingenuous. They appear humble. They appear genuine, but in verse 15, Jesus calls them just directly right out. He knows their hypocrisy, right? He can see behind the mask, and he won't be fooled. He won't be fooled by what they are trying to do. He knows it's a trap. He knows it's a test. But his answer is brilliant. So brilliant, actually, one commentator says this about Jesus' statement and how he answers them. He says this, the statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. That even beyond like uh, Christendom, this statement has, has uh, influenced really uh, particularly in the West politics around the globe. And of course Jesus' answer is brilliant because he is the most brilliant person to ever walk this earth, right? And so how does he answer them? What's he say? They're asking the question is, should we pay taxes? Should we pay this poll tax in particular? It was something that they had to pay every year. And so he asks for a denarius. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Anybody have a denarius in their pocket? I don't think so. So we got one on the screen uh, right here. Um, this is a picture of what a denarius would have looked like in that day. And so what does Jesus ask? He says, well, whose inscription, whose likeness and what inscription is on it? And it is this, it is the one of Caesar. And this, uh, to the Jewish person here, this was actually very uh, blasphemous. This was in many ways rubbing it in their face. A denarius was the equivalent of one day's wage. You work all day, you get one of these uh, coins here. And listen what this same commentator says about this coin. The denarius was a small silver coin weighing about 3.8 grams. So real small. If you got coffee this morning, you had 15 grams of grounds, of coffee grounds that was used to make your uh, cup. So it's pretty small, right? One side uh, bore the head of Caesar in the abbreviated inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. And so that's what you see there on the one side. And on the reverse side was the inscription that said, chief priest. And it was a picture of uh, the, the Caesar's mother on the one side. And so this denarius was the amount paid, get this, into the Roman treasury by all adult men and women just for the privilege of existing. The poll tax was something that had to be paid just for the privilege of being alive in the Roman Empire. You know, just like here, it's every, every year here, they'd have to come and have to pay this. And every time a Jewish person had to pay this, it just rankled them. Why? Because here's somebody claiming to be God. And if we know anything about the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, we should have no other gods, right? We should have no images of God. And so here's someone to be, uh, who's claiming to be God. It's pretty fascinating. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians here now think they have Jesus in a pickle. And Jesus brilliantly in showing them this coin shows not only them but also us this fact. Jesus can't be trapped. If you're taking notes here, here's something that we should learn. Jesus just simply can't be trapped. They're trying to get him to say something incriminating about submitting to the government. And so consider here the, the options in which Jesus could. He, he could answer and just say, hey, no, don't pay the tax. You don't have to do that. Don't pay the poll tax. And then what happens? Then the Herodians win and Jesus is arrested. He goes to jail as somebody who is an, is an insurrectionist who doesn't like the government and they throw him in and then they win. 
If he says, yes, go ahead and pay it, then the Pharisees win, and then they can claim, this guy is an idolater. He doesn't actually follow God. He's now telling us to, to commit idolatry. And therefore, then everything else he said, because we got him on this one thing, now everything else he's said over the last how many years, all the true things, now we don't have to listen to him because now we found out that he's really telling us to commit adultery. And so no matter, or idolatry rather, no matter how he answers, Jesus would be discredited and he would go away and they would no longer have to follow him. And yet, how does the section end? They marvel at his answer. They marvel at his answer because it really is marvelous. It's marvelous what he is teaching here. He will not be trapped, but he teaches us a few things here. And here's what we can learn first is our obedience to the government matters. Our obedience to the government matters. And so he doesn't tell them no, and he does say yes, but he takes it even uh, further. See, this isn't, the, the, the question isn't just a simple uh, uh, question in that should we pay taxes? but he's gonna ramp it up in just the way that Jesus always does. But here in his answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he teaches us that our obedience to the government matters. Christians should joyfully obey the governing authorities. To render means to give to, to, to render the respect that is due to this institution. Why? Why? Well, you know, the, maybe this is news to you, but as you look through the scripture, there's really three kind of layers or three institutions that God has uh, instituted that he has ordained uh, amongst humanity for human flourishing, for the preservation of his people, for, the, uh, for punishing wrongdoers, for discipleship, for uh, rewarding what is good. He's given three layers, the family, the church, and government. Each of those God has put in place for the protection and the preservation of his people, for the punishment of evil and the rewarding of what is good. And anytime any one of those are attacked, uh, human flourishing, humanity, a culture, will be in big trouble. And so God has given us here, for the sake of today, the government. Consider Paul's words in Romans 13 and teaching the Romans the very, uh, the church and the believers there at the epicenter of the Roman authorities where we know the history of, uh, of evil emperors of that day. And Paul tells the believers there and subsequently us here in Romans 13 verse one, I'll just read it for you. It says this, let every person, every person be subject to the governing authorities for as there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now praise God, uh, just time out here, praise God for our democratic process that we get to vote and we should vote here. But there is ultimately one vote that matters the most and it is God's vote who he has instituted into these offices. Verse two then says, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also are to pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all that is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's Romans 13 verses one through seven. Beloved, why does it matter? Why does it matter our obedience to the government is because it is given from God. And this applies in every context, every culture, regardless of who occupies the office. This is what Christ is teaching. So how do we do this? We pray for them. We advocate for biblical wisdom. We engage in the process that currently exists without ever getting the roles reversed. Beloved, our hope is in the Messiah. Our hope is in Christ, never in the government, but we are thankful and grateful that God has put these, uh, these layers in place for our protection and our preservation. And so some of you might be saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, anybody have that? No, you're not like me. We hear these things from, from the Lord, we get these, we hear these instructions, they're clear commands, there's like no getting out, but we always want that, like, that exception, right? But what about, what, what about when this person leaves? Or what about when there are these kind of laws? Or what about in this system? Well, the scripture does give some exceptions. It's kind of beyond the, the, the scope of this passage, but uh, I'll just put it here. As we see in, uh, in biblical examples like Daniel or the apostles in the book of Acts, there are two exceptions for when we do not, uh, are not required to obey the governing authorities, when we can resist. And the first is when they require action that breaks God's commands. When they require action that breaks God's commands, that they say, you must do this in order to obey the government. They create laws that are in clear violation of the commands of scripture. Or second, where they prohibit action that keeps God's commands. You cannot pray, you cannot meet as a church, those types of things when the government prohibits. We can resist the governing authorities, but even those, are, uh, those exceptions are few and far between, I would say. What Christ is teaching us here is to render to Caesar, uh, particularly in the paying of taxes, kind of a timely word for us as we get in that. Everybody's starting to get those things in the mail, right? W-2s and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's that fun season for all of us, right? But our obedience to the government matters. But here's where he ramps it up. Here's the last thing that he teaches us in here, that our life is a stewardship. Our life is a stewardship. See, we get rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but then to God the things that are God's. And so what is he getting at here? Well, in the same way that a denarius bears the image of Caesar, so too your life bears the image of God. When he says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's, what he's meaning by rendering to God is meaning your life. Your life bears the image of God. Your life is a stewardship. The things that you put in and the ways that you use it, the input and the output, how we steward our money, but we also steward our life. And so Christians, brothers and sisters, we joyfully lay down our life in service of the Lord. We joyfully lay down our life in service to the Lord. You know what's really interesting too is Jesus is even teaching this and we just looked at Romans and Romans 13 and and Paul's commands about how we relate to the governing authorities is the chapter before that he touches on this same thing in Romans chapter 12 and telling us to lay down our lives. Hear this, this is Romans 12 verse one. He says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, what is Paul saying here? The same thing that Jesus is saying in rendering to God the things that are God's, your life. And so let me ask this, does your life show that you are conformed to Christ? Does your life show that you have rendered to God the things that are God, the very uh, ways that you spend your time? The things that you uh, do with your money? Is the scripture, is the people of God, or, or the, or, or the, is the spirit having its imprint on you? Are you shining forth as a child of God, bearing the image of God? See, this idea of being conformed here is, is actually very interesting because it, 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 it is all kind of tied together. This idea of conformed is like an imprint. Okay. They would use the same word in, in like clay uh, of the day and, and, and so they would take it and if you like pressed a coin into it, you know, it's kind of like this, uh, like Play-Doh here. And if you were to take a, a coin to, to, and conform it into the Play-Doh, I won't pull it all out because it'll take forever to do it. If I were to take this coin, this 50 cent piece, and press it in, whose face would be conformed in the likeness in the clay? I have a 50 cent piece. Anyone know whose face is on it? Yeah, yeah. Hey, good job. It is, it's true. And be conformed here. Our life is being conformed either by the world or by Christ. The things that we put into it, the things that we watch, the blogs that we read, the shows that we watch, the podcasts we listen to, the news things, all of those things are leaving an imprint on us in order to be used a certain way, bearing an image in the same way that as we spend time in the scriptures, as we spend time with God's people, as we serve the community, as we love God and we love our neighbor, those things are, are, are conforming us. They are, they are making us live out in a way that we have already been made in the image of God. And so when Christ comes and he ups the ante, when he makes this brilliant statement, the reason it is so brilliant is not because of how it informs how we obey the government, as important as that is, but the call to holiness and mission that Christ sets us on even in this trap. See, Jesus can't be trapped. And so what does he always do? He takes us back to the gospel. Gospel taken in results in the gospel lived out. One life on fire for Christ warms everyone else. So church, beloved, how are you spending the coin of your life? How are you spending the coin of your life? Would those around you say that you are rendering to God the things that are God's, your time, your talent, your treasure, your very life? You know, and it is this very thing that Jesus gets to even in this next test. Yeah, we're just in the first one here. This is just test number one. This is the submission test. Who would you submit to? But test number two here is what I'll call the scripture test. The scripture test, it's almost as if there's a line here with Jesus. It's almost as if they're like, Jesus is sitting you know, up somewhere and he's on a stool and you have all these groups of people that are just coming up to like test him. Pharisees and Herodians come, Jesus is like, yep, uh, won that one, Psh, next. Okay, let me hear it. Answers them, Psh, next. They just keep coming and barraging him. But let's read this next test of the Sadducees here. 
pick it up here. Look at Mark 12, beginning in verse 18. It says this, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word for God's people. Another test here. And the reason we put them together uh, like this, there's a lot that we could continue to go in, in in both of these, but in the same thing is really happening in both sections. People are coming to test Jesus. Jesus answers them. He answers them brilliantly, and he has something to teach us. But there's, there's kind of a lot of hot topics in both of these things here, right? We're talking about uh, government and taxes and now heaven and marriage. Like these, these, these are some of the hot topic things of scriptures that kind of get us, get us riled up, that get us injury. Like what's, what's he gonna say, right? What's Jesus gonna say? What's this pastor, you know, gonna say, and so there's all kinds of things in here, but in this section here, now, just like we did before, who are the testers now? The Sadducees, like, who are all these people, right? Who came up with all these crazy names, like, you know, if you're forming a group or a club, the Sadducees, are they sad? Who are they? Well, um, here's something that you should know just about them. They were pretty small in number. As you think of all these groups, they were pretty small in number and they came from uh, the elite. They were very wealthy. And because of their wealth, they were influential. But their, but their demeanor was actually, they were known for being very braggadocious, for being just brash and rude to those that they uh, were around. They would make fun of people. They would jeer and jab. Religiously, they only believed that the Pentateuch was, the, uh, was a part of the scripture. The Pentateuch is those first five books, the books written by uh, uh, Moses, Genesis, Exodus, kids help me, what's next? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's right, that's all they believed that was, uh, were, were part of the scriptures. And so up to this point here, Jesus, you had the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, all the way through uh, to the, the, the prophets and all that. And they said, nope, those books aren't only the first five books. And as such, from their understanding, they denied the resurrection, as we're told here. Meaning they didn't believe that after someone died, they would rise again and be in the presence of God that they were annihilationists, that everyone just ceased to exist after death. And they got that because of their scriptures. And so the Jewish people that day, they said, no, they believed in a resurrection. The scriptures teach this. And they said, nope, no, it doesn't. And so to sum up, who are these people? They were rich, rude, and they rejected the resurrection. And what they are seeking to do here is to discredit Jesus' biblical understanding by creating this absurd scenario. Right? Isn't this just absurd as we read it? Like seven brothers, a wife, like what in the world? 
Yeah? You have a friend like that, maybe you do, that's just like they won't believe you've shared Christ with them faithfully and they just kind of have this like one hang up, this like unrealistic scenario about why they just can't seem to grasp, you know, who God is or why you're saved or why you would follow Christ, you know? Maybe you do, maybe a friend or a family, you know, you can bet these Sadducees have asked many people of this. You can bet this has stumped the Pharisees and other groups that is, they have presented this crazy scenario. It has some, uh, you know, biblical truth to it. They're not just making this up. What they're, what they're deriving this scenario out of is Deuteronomy 25 and the, the, the Old Testament commands of Levite marriage. Okay, and the, the, the thinking behind this was to preserve the family line in the inheritance in the family. And so hear this, I'll just read it for you. It's Deuteronomy 25, verses five and six. It's, it says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so God makes this special provision to care for widows and to, uh, and to uh, keep the inheritance in the family of that particular brother. And so what the Sadducees are doing is they're taking that, creating this kind of absurd scenario in an effort to discredit Jesus and his biblical understanding. They're trying to prove that they are superior in their biblical intellect. Whereas the Pharisees and the Herodians use flattery, the Sadducees are using intellect. They're trying to outsmart Jesus. Anybody ever tried to do that before? Doesn't typically go well, right? You'll probably end like verse 27 says, Jesus will say, you are quite wrong. You can't outsmart him. Jesus won't back down. His answer uh, to them is as brilliant as it is brash and in their face from verse 24. It says, this is the reason you're wrong. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the God of the Bible. And so in ways only Jesus could do, he uses their own accepted scripture as proof. Did you catch that? They only believed in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. And so they're bringing this. And so Jesus there in, in uh, verse 26 uses a passage of scripture from their very own accepted scriptures. He could go to any of them, but he, he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? He's re referring to Exodus 3, verse six here. Exodus 3, in the passage about the bush, God says to, uh, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, Jesus takes them right back to the, their accepted authority, and he outsmarts them using the tense of one verb. You remember tenses? And we're like, grammar school was a long time ago. But you know, he's using a past, or he's coming and saying, no, present tense, I am. Not past tense, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not future tense, I will be, but I am right now. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at this point, they were, they were dead. They were dead. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, implying here, just based on the tense of this one word, that they are still alive. See, here's what we can take away from this. Jesus can't be tricked. In the same way that he can't be trapped, he cannot be tricked. They're trying to trick him with this impossible scenario, thereby discrediting his authority as a teacher, but also the Messiah. Jesus is, he just, that just can't happen. 
See, if they can discredit his authority as the teacher, they also get to discredit him as the Messiah. And then, as we've said all along here, the requirements of our life to follow him disappear. All the other things that he has taught no longer have bearing upon their life. You know, and we humans, we're pretty good at this, aren't we? We're pretty good at this ourselves when we don't like something that the scripture has to say, when we don't like one of Jesus' hard teachings. We, you know, we kind of, we can, we're good at just creating some cultural caveats. Like, oh, well, that was, that was just in their day. Jesus was talking to them. You know, that was, that was, there was just something happening there. That doesn't mean anything for us today. We're good at looking for loopholes. We're good at uh, finding discrepancies in the details. Well, this one doesn't match here and these, these things just don't seem to overlap and therefore there, there's errors in the scripture and we don't have to follow it. You know, beloved, I've, I don't, I don't know, know everything about the scripture. Let me just be the first to admit that. I'm still learning, learning right along with you. I've been studying this book for about 20 years. And I've uh, yet to find one of those supposed errors, discrepancies in the scriptures, one of those details, whatever they might be, that can't be explained with the diligent and proper study of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit helping you. You can trust the book that is in your hand. This is why Jesus' rebuke to them is so strong. You're wrong because you just, you don't simply know the scriptures nor the power of God that comes from knowing the scriptures. This is the power of God. So here's our takeaway. Our understanding of the scripture has real life consequences. Our understanding of the scripture has real life consequences. See, even in the absurd scenario, you're probably wondering, well, what does happen? Who is he married? He doesn't even like answer the question. What is, what's... Like, when you hear this absurd scenario about the seven brothers and wife, you kind of want to know the answer, right? Like, who is he? And Jesus doesn't even really take the question. But what he does is go to the foundation. It starts with, our understanding of the scripture starts with the books that we accept and reject in the canon. See, the 66 books that we have here, there's a reason why they are the inspired and errant word of God. And we don't add to them and we don't take away from them. It starts with this. It starts with our, our, the translation that we use. See, Jesus just stumped them using the tense of one verb. This is why we, we use a translation like the ESV that is a word-for-word -word translation that is readable in, in our language, and yet it is using the best scholarship available uh, in translating the Hebrew, Aramaic, and the Greek. And the, this, is, the, this is important to us because we believe in the inerrancy and the inspiration of the word of God. Jesus uses even down to the words, and so should we. See, from these things, just these two very things, uh, flow truth, they flow what we believe, they flow how we, out of that flows how we act and worship. These Sadducees had built a whole construct, a whole way of living, a whole way of thinking, a whole way of worshiping because they had the scriptures just wrong. And we can do that in our own life as well. It's why we submit ourselves, why we are diligent in our study of the word of God. And they got some pretty important things wrong what Jesus is exposing. Consider the, the two issues that they are, are, are trying to trick Jesus with, that they're trying to press on him. The first is the resurrection. Church, this is our biblical hope, isn't it? That we who believe here the promise of salvation, while it is a promise of an abundant life here, it is also the hope of a future with the Lord. 
So if you've repented and believed today, you have this great hope of that as all who die in Christ are now alive with Christ. That is part of our hope. If you believe the gospel today, we will be resurrected. We await our glorified, perfect bodies with Christ. He also, it, it, influ- it influences their understanding of marriage. That's why they, they create this scenario. They don't, they're like, well, they're trying to use this, their understanding of marriage to disprove that the resurrection doesn't actually happen, that, that there's this impossible situation. But really what is being revealed is that they don't even understand what the scriptures say about marriage. This church, what is, what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God institute marriage? <laughs> yes, this is something from God. Two people, a man and a woman coming together under God. What is the purpose of it? Purpose is sanctification and second, reproduction. Our sanctification, God brings two people together that we would grow in holiness. That somebody would know us uh, so intimately and not just in a physical sense, but know the way that we think and feel and come alongside us so that they would at the same time both be accepting and loving and, at the, and, and equally so challenging us to grow in Christ. So that's what God puts this person close into our life. Yes, to be happy, yes, to have a life full of joy, but it is ultimately uh, one of God's primary means for our growth in Christ's likeness. And out of that then is reproduction. We see it right from the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And so marriage is for that. That's how uh, children are born. That's how the human race propagates. And we all have a, a, a part uh, in that, and not in the, you know, the physical act of creating, but in the, in the coming alongside and, and, uh, and training and discipling the children that we uh, have among us, whether they came from our own womb or not. So, understanding what marriage is for, understanding then what heaven is all about, marriage is no longer necessary in heaven because we are glorified. We, 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 we don't need to grow in Christ-likeness. We will be perfect and complete there. There's no reason for reproduction. And so now as we, as we think about that, you're maybe kind of sad, like, well, I, I kind of like my wife. I mean, I like my wife. Do you like my wife? I, I mean, I think so. Uh, do you like your wife? I hope you like my wife. Do you like your husband? I hope you do. Don't fret. I think, you know, as we look at the biblical witness here, we'll know and recognize and experience great joy with them, but the purpose of marriage here is no longer necessary. And see, when we understand, when we have a biblical concept of the afterlife, of resurrection, of marriage, this is not just like some future thing, but it affects how we live right now. It affects how we live uh, even here and now. Uh, you may be familiar with Randy Alcorn and his ministry and the book that he's written on heaven. It's a f- fantastic book. He has this great quote. It's, it goes like this. He says, heaven isn't only our future home. It's our home already, waiting over the next hill. And if we really grasp this truth, it will have a profound effect on our holiness. A man or a woman who sees themselves seated with Christ in heaven Right now, in the very presence of a God to whom the angels cry out, holy, 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 they won't spend their evenings engaging in sinful activity and whittling their life away. But rather, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he himself is pure. 
See, heaven, marriage, they motivate us to live holy lives here and now set apart. They motivate us to be zealous for good works, on fire for the great commission. You know, these things, they're, they're in the Sadducees here, they're, they're in this power struggle with Jesus for the authority over their own life. But Jesus is saying, no, like, you are sent out now in the power of God with Jesus' authority. You get the difference? Do you know the peace and joy of the difference? peace and joy of being in Christ, of having right understanding and living now with the hope that we have in heaven and the purpose and meaning of our present relationships, of the, of the purpose and meaning of the mission that God has put us on to fulfill the great commission, to be a light in the darkness. It's a peace and joy that believers have that we don't have to go through life striving. I have to uh, you know, get to the end wondering, did I make it? Did I do enough good? But see, when we understand the scripture, when we understand who Christ is, it's a peace and joy like that when a test is over and you know you've aced it. You ever experienced that? Taking a test, been certified, and you know you aced it. But in this case, Jesus did ace the test for us. And we get to enjoy the benefits with him because he stood in our place. He took the test and we just simply submit to his authority, living out our faith by grace and inviting others to experience it with us. See, the Messiah Jesus, he passed every test thrown his way. And he was both the tested and the teacher all at once taking the test and in the turn, turning it back on their head and us, giving him all the credibility that is due to him. All the credibility, all the authority that inspires then our response of what? Of worship, of a life poured out, of a life saying, I give to you, God, what is rightfully you, yours, my very life. Would you worship him with me now? We pray together and we'll sing a song as we close. God in heaven, these are some glorious truths for us today. Some heavy things, some, some real uh, truths that uh, cause us to, to sit and consider our life. Uh, where am I at in, in regards to these things, Lord? And yet you are so good, you are so gracious, you are so kind to draw us in here. God, we don't wanna be like the Pharisees, the Herodians, or the Sadducees. Lord, would you forgive us for when we, when, we, when we press against you, when we test you, simply out of, out of a, a, a disobedient heart because we just don't want to do what you are telling us to do. But God, in your kindness and your mercy, would you draw us in? Would you give us eyes to see what you're teaching us? Would you give us hearts that are able to experience your power as we, uh, we live out and we obey your word? Would you give us zeal, God, compassion for the people around us? That we would live steadfastly for you. Jesus, you're, you're, you're amazing. You're brilliant. You, you possess an understanding unlike any of us in here. So we just worship you. We say that you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our praise. And so now we, we, we sing those truths to you, Christ. 
pray these things in, in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.